Welcome back to Go Gaddis Real Estate Radio right here on AM 920 The Answer. I am so glad that you joined us this Saturday. During this segment, are we in a housing bubble? Is it possible that the bubble's going to pop? Those of you who are looking to sell a home, is it possible you miss the timing and you have to sell for less? Those of you looking to buy a home, is it possible that you'll buy the home and it'll be worth less a couple of years from now than it is today? We've got some facts to help you make better decisions in that regard. Also, some quick fixes for your common household problems. And some of these I've never heard of before, but they sound like they would work to me. My name is Cleve Gaddis. You're listening to Go Gaddis Real Estate Radio, where we help listeners go from real estate novices to experts so home selling and buying can be done with total confidence and without all the worry that's typical with life's biggest investments. Remember, we want to connect with you. We really, really want to connect with you. Go to gogaddisradio.com, G-O-G-A-D-D-I-S radio.com. You can ask questions. You can make comments. You can push back. You can share ideas. You can request your neighborhood be featured in our neighborhood spotlight coming up in the fourth segment. That's really cool to be driving down the road in metro Atlanta and hear your neighborhood featured on the radio. And you can subscribe to our podcast. We're available on every major podcasting platform, and we would love for you to be a podcast subscriber. Are we in a housing bubble? I don't believe we're in a housing bubble. Here are a few reasons why, and if those of you are listening say, well, of course he doesn't believe we're in a housing bubble. He is a real estate broker. He makes his living selling houses. Yes, but the reality is that I wouldn't tell you I didn't think we were in a housing bubble. If I did think we were in a housing bubble, I would try to help you protect yourself and your family's finances from the housing bubble. The reality is today houses are not unaffordable like they were during the housing boom. Now, affordability doesn't just consider the home price. It also considers wages earned by the purchaser and mortgage rates. So it's a combination of the price of the home, the average income, of home purchasers, and the mortgage interest rate. Fifteen years ago, prices were high, wages were low, and mortgage interest rates were over 6%. Today, prices are still high. Wages, however, have increased, and the mortgage rate, even after the recent spike, is still well below 6%. That means the average purchaser today pays less of their monthly income toward their mortgage payment than they did back then. 2007, the average purchaser of a home spent 34.1% of their income to pay their housing cost, principal and interest, in 2007, 34.1%. The normal lending standard is to keep your household or housing monthly principal and interest payments to no more than 28% of your income today, and this is according to Black Knight, the average home purchaser in America spends 25.4, excuse me, 25.8% of their income, significantly below the 34.1% in 2007 and the normal lending standards of 28%. The next thing I want to discuss is mortgage standards were much more relaxed during the housing boom that led to the recession. They're much stricter today. Mortgage standards are really nothing like they were last time. Purchasers that acquired a mortgage over the last decade are much, much, much more qualified. Well, what does that mean? If we take a look at loans made to people with credit scores below 620, in 2006, there were $380 billion, $380 billion worth of loans made 
to home buyers who have credit scores of less than 620. And if you're listening and you have a low credit score, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you. Not saying that at all. I'm just saying that in general, people with lower credit scores tend to be a higher risk than people with higher credit scores as proven by their credit score. In 2021, there were between 70 and $80 billion in loans made to people with a credit score of 620 or below. So it went from $380 million down to $80 million. The reality is there is much less risk of having homeowners default on their loans. And with the significant equity gain, I mean, we just read something in the second or first segment, says the average equity gain in a home throughout the U.S. this past year was $56,000. That's 56,000 more reasons that a homeowner is not going to let a bank take away their home. When you have equity in your home, you have options. You can do things you want. The foreclosure situation is nothing like it was during the crash. As I mentioned, people have a lot more equity in their home. People say there is going to be a foreclosure crisis coming, and I don't believe that. In 2009, there were over 2 million. Let that sink in just a second. 2 million foreclosures in the United States in 2009. 2 million. 2 million families' lives just turned upside down. I'm not saying they deserve it or they didn't deserve it or they could have made the payments or they couldn't make the payments. I'm not standing in judgment of that. I'm saying 2 million families had their lives turned upside down because they had their house taken away from them by their bank. In 2020, there was 129,000 foreclosures. In 2021, certainly because of the moratorium put in place because of the pandemic, there was 38,000 foreclosures. We are nowhere near where we were leading up to the crash, and we don't have a surplus of houses available for sale. Now, what does that mean, a surplus? It's not like you buy houses and you judge inventory the same way you would go into a grocery store and say, well, if I need 12 boxes of cereal and I have 12 buyers, then I have the right number of cereal for buyers. Well, the reality is, is that's exactly the way housing supplies work. So back in 2009, there was 7.3 months worth of inventory. 2007, there were 9.6 months worth of inventory. 2010, there were 8.5 months worth of inventory. In 2018, there were 3.7 months. In 2019, 3 months. In 2020, 1.9 months. In 2021, 1.8 months. What does that mean, months of inventory? Well, very simply it means if you take the number of homes that sold in a market area over the last 12 months and divide it by 12, and for example, if you were looking at a neighborhood and there were 12 homes sold, then one home sold per month over the last year. If there were two homes available for sale today, then it is projected that it would take two months to sell those two homes. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you, but you can take those numbers and apply it to a school district or an entire city of Atlanta or the city of Decatur or wherever you want. And what we're saying is throughout the United States, if no new homes come on the market, it will take 1.8 months. It'll take less than eight weeks for every single home that is listed currently today to go under contract and to close. Anything more than, for example, economists say that a market that is in balance has six months' worth of inventory. I do not believe that is accurate. We say that a market that has less than four months' worth of inventory is a seller's market. Four and five months' worth of inventory is a balanced market. Over five months' worth of inventory is a buyer's market. And we are far away from having anything near six months' worth of inventory 
The reality is, is that the decrease in inventory or the low inventory today is one of the reasons that we have such acceleration in the pricing of houses today. So housing affordability is still good. Lending standards are much stricter today than they were leading up to the recession. So people who own homes are a lot more qualified and those who are more qualified can better withstand the hiccups. We also have much lower inventory, which is very significant. And then we, so we have less inventory. Uh, let's see here. I'm missing one of the things there. Houses are not unaffordable like they were during the pandemic. Uh, the mortgage standards were much higher. Foreclosure situation, that's the fourth one. The foreclosure situation is nothing now like it was then. Does it seem like there's always something going on as a homeowner that just frustrates you to no end, like windows that won't open or scuff floors from the kids and dogs that are toilet that just keeps running? That just happened in my house. Would it help to know that there are a few things that can easily be fixed without calling a repairman? Wouldn't that ease your mind? Wouldn't that make you more comfortable? George in Cumming writes in, now that we have owned our home for a few years, it seems like there are never-ending projects to do. I guess that comes with home ownership, he says, but there are some quick fixes. But are there some quick fixes that can be done by a not-so-handy man? Yes. If you have squeaky floors, and by the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Go Gaddis Real Estate Radio on AM 920, Atlanta's own The Answer. If you have squeaky floors, you can banish that annoying squeak by sprinkling a little talcum powder over the noisy area. And brushing it into the cracks, I would assume they're talking about over a wood floor. If you have a stained tub, you can remove the stains by combining equal amounts of cream of tartar and baking soda with enough lemon juice to make a paste. Rub the mixture into the stain with your fingers in a soft cloth. Let it sit for an hour, then rinse well with water. I'd love it if one of you guys wanted to try that and let me know if it works. Stuck sliding windows loosen stuck windows by spraying a little silicone spray lubricant found at a hardware store onto a rag then wiping along the tracks whether metal wood or plastic dry or worn cutting boards i have ruined a few cutting boards revive a worn cutting board by warming a bottle of mineral oil which is available at drugstores in a bowl of hot water then wiping the oil onto the surface let it sit for four to six hours and then wipe it all off you can take scuff marks off of linoleum or vinyl floors by rubbing the spot with white toothpaste and a dry cloth or spraying WD-40 on a towel and rubbing lightly. Later, degrease the area with liquid dishwashing soap and water if you use the WD-40. And if you got a poor flushing toilet, I had a, touch, a toilet upstairs that was not poorly flushing, but it was letting the water run continuously, and somehow the chain that pulls the flapper up had gotten a little bit longer, so... Before the flapper could go down, the chain would get underneath the flapper and it would hold it open just a little bit. That particular plumbing pipe runs down the side wall in my kitchen and I could hear the water running down the wall. But before you call a plumber, look for the water valve behind the toilet on the wall and turn it counterclockwise as far as you can. Once it's fully open, the tank will get its optimal water fill and, and be powerful enough for your flush. And then torn window screens, if tiny tears are letting bugs in, apply clear nail polish to any tiny holes. That is some great advice. So if you're looking to do some things around your house, maybe that'll give you some good information. we got to take a quick break. When we come back in our neighborhood spotlight, Fox Creek and coming. And are you ready to fall in love with homeownership? Stick with us. We've got those subjects and more. We'll be back.